0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. This is our last session, introducing our group Vision to Be Undaunted. We are dedicating ourselves to God's call of remaining ever on mission, unshaken, and confident. The idea of being undaunted is encapsulated in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Let's read it all together. 2 Timothy 1:7. Say the reference and then the verse. 2 Timothy 1-7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love, and discipline. Close your eyes, please. Close your eyes. Say it again, starting with a reference. 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, and love, and discipline. Open your eyes, if you would. Well done. Look at our notes. Um, you, in your, if you're here in the auditorium, you've got a bulletin. There are notes inside there. If you're, if you're with us in another way, there should be available to you electronically the notes. And you will see in our notes the undaunted action plan. That's what Second Timothy 1, seven is, the undaunted action plan. It has four big ideas. First, no timidity. The Greek is pneuma delia. Uh, it's what we're told to fight against. Pneuma is uh, wind or spirit in Greek. Uh, delia is weak or vacillating. So, Numadelia delia is like a sail that isn't filled by any wind. God's people are commanded to be continually fighting against our natural, cowardly, weak, intimidated spirit. We are not to be like, like sails flapping loosely in a languid wind. Of course, that brings up the question that you're posing in your Greek sailor imitation. You are asking, how can that happen? How can we properly fill our sails? Great question. Thank you so much for asking, Nicholas. Let me answer you with a story which you probably already know because you're a Greek sailor. For millennia, ships could only sail. Did you know this? Ships could only sail with the wind astern. It had to be behind them. Uh, Tacks were very laborious because you, the ship could never get more than 80 degrees off of the wind. If you got more than 80 degrees away from the wind, you were dead in the water. But then some very enterprising Dutchmen took a, a bunch of experimental Mediterranean technology and they developed a fore and aft rig with a movable boom. On the, on the mast, so you could move, you could set your sail out to get the wind. That allowed ships to move at 300 degrees of wind direction. Look, look up here. This is absolutely world changing. For millennia, people could only move in 80 degrees, 80 degrees of good sailing. That was it. Suddenly, you had 300 degrees. You could almost sail right into the wind. Isn't that astonishing? And and those people who had the 300-degree sailing ships, they came up with a term for folks who were stuck only being able to get 80 degrees of the wind. They called it a ship in irons. A ship in irons. Christians are people of the spirit. We we are not people of timidity. We are driven by the pneuma, by God's spirit. We're not luffing in pneuma delia. When we rely on the weak power of ourselves, we're like an old-fashioned square rigged ship. We are literally in the irons of our own flesh. Instead, you and I are meant to fly. How? By turning ourselves into receptacles of God's power. His pneuma, his spirit, can fill our sails, free our irons, and make us fly with close-hauled courage. All God's people said? That's why the Greek word for power in our text is dunamis. Now get this. About 100 years before Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, the one we just read from, there was a Stoic philosopher named Posidonius, this, this guy right here, Posidonius, he created a whole new philosophy around this term, Dunamis. Let me tell you about Posidonius, this philosophy, no, take too long, let me sum up. Um, Posidonius said there's got to be some kind of invisible power in the universe, and, and powerful living comes in being in proper relation to this, this power. Look at this. Posidonius taught on roads. Look look up here at the map. You You see little roads right here? That's where Posidonius taught. And his philosophy spread like crazy over the next 50 years and then even more over the 100 years between Posidonius and when Paul wrote 2 Timothy. The areas that I shaded in yellow on this map are the areas where Posidonius's Dunamis philosophy had the most impact, including this really major town right here, a place of, of uh, a couple of what we would call universities called Tarsus. You, uh, you Pauline scholars, what is Tarsus? What is that? That's where he's from. That's where Paul got his higher education. Oh my goodness, do you see what Paul is doing here? This is so cool. Look, he's using pneuma. That's a term that Jesus purposefully used to describe the Holy Spirit of God. He's using pneuma in conjunction with dunamis, Pasadonius' famous term for this universal power to which one must rightly relate. This is so clever. The Apostle is succinctly declaring that God the Holy Spirit is that force which Posidonius referenced. Posidonius was partly right. There is an invisible power to which you must relate if you want dunamis, if you want power in life. But that force is not some unknown mystery. It has to do with the power of the triune God who reveals himself to humans because he wants us to be rightly related to him. God has made it possible for human beings to live by the power of his spirit. Thus, power is the second part of the undaunted action plan. If you want to overcome fear and timidity, turn your sails to align with God. Amen? Let me show you a picture of this. Um, look in your, in your notes or up here on the screen. There's a piece of art that I think really well depicts Paul's word choices. Uh, While we examine this painting, while you look at it, I want you to look at it carefully. I'm going to read you a review of this painting. This was written by um, Arthur Wheelock. He's a former curator at the National Gallery. Wheelock says this, Willem van de Velde the Younger, is that a great name? Willem van de Velde the Younger. I mean, you're always young if you have that name. Anyway, sorry. He knew the ships, uh, the sea, and the ships that sailed it. Equally important, this great 17th century Dutch painter could capture the thrilling rush of excitement when a boat, under full sail, surges through rough waters with spray crashing over its bow. Whether one is a sailor or not, the idea of being at the helm of such a vessel, of controlling its course through skill and fortitude, conveys a sense of freedom and adventure. Friends, what he's saying is, this is the the sheer joy that is found in working in concert with God's pneuma, uh, lot goes on. He says, Although traveling on the Zuyder Zee could be turbulent because of its notoriously choppy waters, many fully embrace this adventure. In Ships in a Stormy Sea, that's the painting, Van de depicted one such passenger. I want you to find this guy. The standing man wearing a broad-brimmed brown hat and coat. He's gesturing excitedly toward the wave crashing over the bow. Let's say it again. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. Let's say it all together. Reference first. 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. No timidity. How? Via God's power. It's exhilarating. And through love. The Greek word is agape. I explained this excellent idea last time we were together. Agape is a a powerful term. It it means... um, Other-centered, purposeful, unconditional, self-sacrificial love. Um, After I taught agape, I received a cool note from my friend Nate Couch. Uh, He wrote and said this, Wayne, a friend of mine, Jonathan Dove, pastors a church in Auckland, New Zealand. In their services, they often use Maori words during their music and sermons. Recently, you talked about agape love, which clicked a memory of a Maori phrase that I think describes agape love perfectly. In Maori, the phrase is Kia Aroa Noa. That's your fancy Maori word, a phrase for the day, boys and girls. Say Kia. Say Aroa, Aroa. Noa, which translates as love without limits. That's pretty good. That's agape. May there be no limits to our love. Amen. In a world that is continually scared out of its wits. We can have no timidity. How? By power and love and discipline. Discipline is sophronis most, one of the oldest terms in Greek. It's a word that means judgment, um, sound or wise discernment. But, but it's got more depth than that. Look, look, from the very earliest writings of Homer through Plato all the way to the Apostle Paul, sophronis most demands discipline. It's a word that means discipline. It's not just understanding what to do. It is the practice of doing wise and right things. Like agape, this is a practical term. It has to do with more than a feeling, as Boston so nicely sang. It's more than a feeling. Actually, there's another of Tom Schultz's Boston songs that really fits today's work well, Don't Look Back, because discipline involves not looking back. Let's learn about sophronismos and and the most important part of it, or the first part of it, is not looking back. Classic example, Genesis 19. Turn there in your Bible, if you would. Very first book of your Bible is Genesis. Go to chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 17. As soon as the angels got them outside, whoa, hold your horses. What's the context here? Okay, there's a guy named Lot. He's the nephew of Abram. And, uh, and he is, he is an influential, remarkable guy, but he's living in a cesspool of a place called Sodom, okay? And, uh, and, and Sodom's about to be destroyed by God because it's absolutely horrific and terrible. And Lot has been warned by these angels, and finally they've gotten him and his family to get out and to, to move on. Verse 17, as soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, "'Run for your lives.'" Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. Okay, come down to verse, that's in the middle of the night. Now go down to verse 23. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. As we headline on the right side of our notes, discipline involves not looking back. In 2003, archaeologist Stephen Collins began a dig in Jordan that would eventually involve uh, archaeologists, historians, geologists, and cosmologists from seven countries. They were digging here at this site, Tal El-Hammam. Some of you have been blessed to get to go there with me. Dr. Collins very kindly gave us access. 14 years after they started that dig, The Jordanian government announced the consensus decision of of world archaeologists. Tal el Hamam is very likely the site of biblical Sodom. It's one of the great finds of our time. One of the non-Christians on the dig site, uh, Dr. Christopher Moore, gives a really great summary of what they found. I want to read to you what Dr. Moore wrote. Uh, he said, as the inhabitants of an ancient Middle Eastern city now called Tal el-Hammam went about their daily business one day about 3,600 years ago, they had no idea an unseen icy space rock was speeding toward them at about 38,000 miles per hour. Flashing through the atmosphere, the rock exploded on a massive fireball about 2.5 miles above the ground. The blast was around 1,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. By the way, when you're at a dig site, a lot of times when you go to ancient sites, you'll see burn layers, and they're very easy to tell. You firemen can, can help explain this. are very easy to tell the difference. Uh, almost all burn layers are from the surface. It's from armies or people set fire to things. Uh, but it looks very, very different when it comes from above. And the burn layer at Tal el Hamam is like nothing else in the world. There's nothing I've ever seen like it. The blast was around 1,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Air temperatures rapidly rose above 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Clothing and wood immediately burst into flames. Swords, spears, mud bricks, and pottery began to melt. Almost immediately, the entire city was on fire. Some seconds later, a massive shockwave smashed into the city. Moving at about 740 miles per hour, that wave was more powerful than the worst tornado ever recorded. And by the way, it's not hard to measure with mud bricks how... Strong, the wind was hitting it. Listen to what happened. The, the wind sheared off the top 40 feet of the four story palace, blew jumbled debris into the next valley. None of the 8,000 people or any animals within the city survived. Their bodies were torn apart and their bones blasted into small fragments, which is exactly what we find at that site. He finishes with this We're not certain yet, but we think the explosion may have vaporized or splashed toxic levels of Dead Sea salt water across the valley, turning into a pillar of salt indeed. Without crops, no one could live in that valley for up to 600 years until the minimal rainfall in this desert-like climate washed the salt out of the fields, close quote. All right, consider the word plain. Look at verse 17 in your text. The word we translate plain is the Hebrew word kikar, which sounds like something to do with an automobile, kikar. Um, Kikar can be translated three ways. It can mean a corner, it can mean a circle, or it can mean a plain. Now, What's interesting is Dr. Collins actually found Sodom because he, precisely because he interpreted Kikar as circle. Plain was the normal interpretation for, for centuries, and, and it's really not likely. The context plane doesn't fit well, but before Collins, everybody thought that circle, which is the most likely meaning here, circle didn't fit the situation, but Dr. Collins thought, hey, What if the primary city-states of the Bronze Age were arranged in a circle? What if they thought of themselves as a circle of influence? That's what led him to excavate Tal-el-Hammam and discover the massive evidence that this was Sodom. Now, let's get to the applications. That command in verse 17 is literally get out of the circle of influence, right? Do not delay. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Get out of the circle of influence. Now, think about your life. What are the circles of influence in our lives today? Let's quickly cover a few. I'd like you to just raise your hand. I, I conveniently made a little picture here of, of our life with circles of influence, and, and I categorized them into five different kinds of circles. I know there are more than these. But let's start with blue. I, I made blue the chaotic. What is a chaotic influence in our lives? Do not say me. What is a chaotic influence in our lives today? Somebody raise your hand. Give me a chaotic influence in your life. Yes? Social media. Social media. Chaotic. Very good. You might even move that to a different color. That is good. Um, I made green is bad. This is, not, this is not horribly committed evil. It's just something that's not healthy. It's not good for you. What's, what's a generally bad influence in life today? Yes, what do you got? Drugs are bad. They can be. Uh, all the people that take medication here are trying not to be offended. But, yes, we understand exactly what you mean. That's right. Um, red is wicked. Now, this is, this is absolute terrible wickedness what give me what's an influencer in our life that is wicked Uh, yes ma'am pornography Pornography, absolutely horrible demeans uh, it demeans into an object the the thing at which one is gazing and it demeans the person into nothing but a materialist tool it's absolutely evil orange is good these are good things not necessarily holy but it's but it's a a general positive in life give me a give me a general positive in life What's a positive? Somebody, give me one. Yeah, what do you got? What was it? Yes, friendship. That's a positive. Very nice. How about uh, the yellow is holy. Give me a holy. What's a holy thing? The Bible. Yeah, very good. It certainly is. Okay, so look at those, and you're going to notice I put this together in one certain way. I made sure that these circles of influence overlapped, and here's why. Because sometimes Christians cannot physically flee. Sometimes we shouldn't even physically flee. Notice that that in this wickedness right here, there is still work going on right there. You see that? The the yellow is at work where that is evil. We can't always physically flee, but we must, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, we are commanded not to settle, not to be of this world. We are to flee, and this is not merely a one-time battle. Like Lot's wife, you know what you and I do. We often stop and we gaze at the circles that we know are destructive to us. Unlike her, we face this, chase, this choice over and over and over. Why do we look back? Because we like sin. <laughs> it's in our warped DNA. We get some kind of pleasure from remaining in the evil circle of influence. We can even long for it. Looking back implies longing for that which was evil. Thus the angel warns them not to look back. Don't long for evil left behind. Moses had, this is amazing to me, Moses had a number of different word choices for look. He could have chosen a number of words for look. But he chose, in verse 17 and verse 26, he chose a form of nebate. Nebate is a word that's used about 50 times in the Old Testament. The very first appearance is in Genesis 15. God calls Abraham, and he says to him, I want you to go outside and look at the stars. Number the stars, he says to Abraham. That gives you an idea right there of what Nebate means, right? Nebate is not, she is not turned to salt because she glances back real quickly. This is a word for stopping and assessing and thinking and ruminating. When you look, count the stars, you don't do that standing up, you lie down right? Otherwise, I'm going to crack in your neck, right? This is for settling somewhere. Lot's wife is nebate. She is longing for what's accustomed for things, even evil things that seem normal to her. But God says, don't do that. Don't settle. Don't ruminate on sin and evil. Discipline involves not looking back. Earlier, I mentioned uh, Boston's hit song, Don't Look Back. Nebate this. Look, look at this. Tom Schultz, really great lyrics here. He says, it's a new horizon. And I'm awaking now. Oh, I see myself in a brand new way. The sun is shining, the clouds are breaking, because I can't lose now. There's no game to play. I can tell. There's no more time left to criticize. I've seen what I could not recognize. Everything in my life was leading me on, but I can be strong. I finally see the dawn arriving. I see beyond the road I'm driving, far away and left behind. Close quote. Far away and left behind. That is the spirit of the angel's command in Genesis nineteen. Get out of the circle. Don't long for evil left behind. Don't look back as you walk on. Now, let's leave Genesis. Let's turn over to the New Testament. Uh, let's go to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, which will be just before First Timothy and right after what, everybody? First Thessalonians. It's amazing how that works. All right, Second Thessalonians chapter two. Let's go to verse thirteen. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. You want to overcome fear? You need Sophronis most. You need discipline. And discipline involves not just not looking back. Discipline involves sanctification by grace. From the beginning, God chose those who trust him. And this life isn't even the end of that choice. By God's grace, we obtain forever lives in glory in Jesus. It's not because of us we're saved. It's because of God's grace. We're not the prime mover. We, we don't deserve God's choosing, right? Right. But that perspective can be hard to keep. I read an article recently by uh, Crispin Sartwell. He does a great job explaining why you and I struggle with sanctification by grace. Dr. Sartwell teaches philosophy at Dickinson College. Here's what he wrote. Everyone seems to want to tell me what I deserve. When I listen to the hundreds of marketers and politicians telling me what I deserve because I'm worth it, my self-esteem enjoys a boost. But then I wonder how these folks I've never met know what I deserve. Evidently, I deserve all good things just for being in the range of their voices or being eligible for automobile financing. (laughs) Constantly being told, this is brilliant, constantly being told what I deserve puts me in a state of anxiety. Deep in the night, I'm not entirely sure that I do deserve the truth a new sport utility vehicle or excellent infrastructure. I reflect on all the things I've done wrong, all the people that I've betrayed, all the bad decisions I've reached, all the crimes that, speculatively speaking, of course, I may have committed, Sometimes I worry that I actually deserve to be penalized rather than awarded a new car, close quote. Now, that's funny and really wise. I want you to look at the contrast. The biblical idea is grace, undeserved merit that comes from God and is activated by trust in his provision. I deserve nothing. My salvation is by God's gracious calling. By contrast, the worldly perspective is this goofy lie that I deserve all good things. Do you see the difference? What's the outcome of each perspective? If I discipline myself to think in terms of grace, I gain confidence. I know I have eternal salvation. I know that God's word is true and my end is glory. And Dr. Sartwell nailed the opposite outcome. He knows that when I buy into the entitlement perspective, all that does is increase my anxiety. Right? Right? look at verse 13. Do you see the word? Look at the the term sanctification there. Sanctification by the Spirit. That's a fancy theological word, sanctification. It means the process of becoming holy. Sanctification demands effort from the human, but that effort is empowered by God's grace. It's of the Spirit. This is the foundation of all discipline. Not that I deserve Jesus' love, but I live differently because he freely gives it to me. Look, here's how Paul described uh, sanctification by grace in another letter. Uh, This one was to the church at Philippi. I'd like you to read with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. You join me on the underlined text. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. That is so awesome. 2 Thessalonians and Philippians are are Paul describing, it's God through Paul describing a a life of discipline empowered by grace. One of my favorite books of all time is Jerry Bridges' Discipline of Grace. And, and, And listen to what Jerry says. He says, sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, requires sustained and vigorous effort. It allows for no indolence, no lethargy, No half-hearted commitment, no laissez-faire attitude toward even the smallest sins. In short, it demands the highest priority in the life of a Christian because to be holy is to be like Christ, God's goal for every Christian. And that sanctification pursuit, that sanctified pursuit, is all by what, everybody? By grace. Nothing so motivates us to deal with sin in our lives as does the understanding and application of the two truths. That our sins are forgiven and the dominion of sin is broken. We are no longer in irons because of our union with Christ. Do you, do you want to stop being so afraid all the time? Develop the discipline of grace. Work toward glory. Not because you're great, but because God is. Because Jesus has taken hold of you. Let me give you a great example. Uh, look up here. This is a video that was viral a few days ago. Um, little girl here, a little gymnast. And and she her coaches, her dad, actually is trying to get her to jump. He's trying to get her to use her core. She's jumping with her legs, and he wants her to use her use her stomach muscles to, to snatch her, her quads up and, and get her body up. And she's and she's trying, but she's trying because he is there. Look at how he's encouraging her. And see, he's giving her challenges, and she, yeah, she's right back with him. And he's there. She's not gonna be hurt. He has got her. And so she does it. Yes, give her a hand. It was amazing. She's my hero. All right. Again, the, the American rocker Tom Schultz thought about these things a bit. I want you to look at another poem of his. This is a poem called We're Ready. Tom says, I know that there's something just out of sight, and I feel like I'm finally seeing the light, and I feel like we're trying to do something right. Come on, make it if we hold on tight. We're ready. Hold tight. That idea is the final scriptural instruction regarding Sophronus Mos. Discipline involves not looking back. It involves discipline of grace, and it involves holding tight. Pick up where we left off. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Undaunted indeed. There are three aspects of being undaunted here. First, God calls us to hold to scriptural traditions. There is a very important difference between tradition and traditionalism. Yaroslav Pelikan, the the great Greek Orthodox uh, historian, he said it best. I don't think this is going to be improved on. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. To the the scriptures, which are both written and lived out by the apostle, those are to be our only rule. Look at this. We do not hold to something just because it's always been done that way. Neither do we change just because society pressures us to. Christians stand undaunted, holding to the Bible lived out. Now, in our age, there are two great movements that that hold poorly. They actually hold very poorly to Scripture. On one side are these Christians who do not hold fast to Scriptural traditions. They're, They're usually our brethren, and we love them, but they are so thrilled every chance they get to warp Scripture if it will just make them more popular. They, they, I, I don't know how to put this nicely. I don't hate these people. These are these are my brethren. And I love them even if they're not. But they, they are thrilled to do any dance they can to make Scripture uh, take an inferior seat to modern culture. At the other extreme are churches like Yaroslav Pelikan's uh, Greek Orthodox Church that that are so bound up in their traditionalism. They call it tradition with a capital T, but it's traditionalism that they... They override the scripture with that traditionalism all the time and they end up worshiping nonsense. Again, I'm not trying to be ugly here. I, I love these these folks. But but the but the the problem is that their their thinking is absolutely nonsensical. And it's not just liberals and traditionalists who are struggling today. I just during the past year, I have received phone calls, and prayed with many search committees and elders from churches all across the United States. Um, and, And they were all struggling with one thing. They could not find a talented candidate to be their pastor who was committed to scripture as given. Do you understand that? A preacher can be a very great man, even disciplined in his practices, but if he doesn't hold tight to scripture as given by God, he will fail. Verses 16 and 17 describe the second aspect of being undaunted here. Hold to the fruits of God's grace. There are four fruits of grace listed here. Love, encouragement, hope, and strength. Anybody here ever go through a hard season of life? Raise your hand if you've ever gone through a hard season of life. Yeah, me too. When you've gone through those kinds of hard seasons, what's the best thing that someone can do for you? I would say that the best thing they can do is right here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. They can give you love, encouragement, hope, and strength. There's nothing better than those blessings. And that's what God gives us. And these change everything. We talked about love. Look at the first one. we talked about love quite a lot lately. Uh, that word in verse 16 is our old friend, the Greek word agape. That's what God grants us. He gives us unconditional Sacrificial love. Encouragement, you can see, is mentioned twice, actually. Each time, it's a form of the word paraclete. Um, the paraclete is the one who's right beside you, tied together at the hip. It's a word that was used in, in uh, battle for the, for the soldiers that were next to you in the flanks, that were protecting you with their sword and you with, with your shield protecting them. That's why we translate it in That paraclete gives you courage. Think, think what this is saying. God is in the fight with me. Knowing that God is in the fight with me, that gives me courage. And that encouragement is is not conditional. Look at your text. This isn't limited to a day or a season. Verse 16 says this is eternal encouragement. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. And, of course, that leads to the third and fourth blessings of God's grace, hope and strength. I want to illustrate hope and strength for you. To do that, I need a small child from the audience, please. The first small child here to raise her hand gets to come up and help me. Who was it? Was that you? Come on up. Come on, buddy. Come here. You're not small. You're too big. Sit. (laughs) Sit. I mean, you are small, but you're... Come here. Come here. All right. uh, That's fine. All right. Come on. Come on up here. Come on up here. All right. Tell everybody your name, Miss Bailey. Elizabeth Bailey. Elizabeth Bailey. Bailey. All right. Elizabeth, come right over here in your pretty dress. And you are going to hold this rope right here. Okay, you got it? All right, now, you're representing the Christian that's trying to hold fast, okay? You're trying to stand strong. And, and I'm going to be what's trying to pull you off, all right? So on the count of three, I'm going to say go, and you try and hold fast, and I'm going to try and pull you over, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Oh, that's not fair. I'm so much bigger than you are. And uh, so I have an idea for you. Travis, would you come up here? Do you see Mr. Bradley there? Do you see him? There's a lot of him to see, isn't there? Yeah, <laughs> He's a big guy. Okay, Mr. Bradley is on your side now, okay? Oh, yeah, I know. Hey, here. All right, you hold right here. He's going to anchor behind you. Oh, my goodness, this is going to be horrible. All right, on the count of three, now let's see how you do. One, two, three. (laughs) That was awesome. Okay, what was the difference? Why did you win that time? Because he was helping you. Mr. Bradley was helping you, right? And he was actually hurting my hands. um, Speaking speaking of hands, let's give them a hand. Well done. Good job, Elizabeth. Thank you, Travis. Very good. The third aspect of holding tight is to hold forth good works and words. Look Look what your text says. Don't be afraid to do and say the good things. I know, I know. This is frightening because you live in an age where every good thing you do or say can be turned into some kind of ugly meme to shame you and Christians. Big deal. I'm sorry, I'm I'm not trying to be flippant, but big, fat, hairy deal. Do good anyway, right? You have an eternal perspective. Let, Let me close with 10 practices. That I think even in a difficult world, we should, all, we should all discipline ourselves to do. These are things that have changed my life, and I think they have changed this community that's grown up around us here. Wherever you live, I recommend strongly that you practice these words and works. They become a natural part of your life. Number one, forgive. Forgive even what you can't forget. This takes Practice. You have to discipline yourself. Look, here it is in a nutshell. Forgiveness means that every time that evil comes to mind, you take the thought captive and you choose to ask God's blessing on that person. And this is true even if that person is yourself. Number two, serve in ministry. One of the best things you can do to develop discipline in your life is have people depend on you regularly. Serving others is an amazing tonic. Just ask anybody who serves with children or youth around here. This is, this is so fascinating. It is easier, it is so much easier to overcome fear on a regular basis when I, when I am teaching and engaging with children. It's incredible. Number three, do a great job at work. This is a very important habit. It runs all the way through your Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God made work for us, and when we work well, the results change the world. Number four, share the gospel. Just last Sunday, another man became a believer in Jesus right here in this room. Do you know why that happened? It happened because his friend at work kept sharing the gospel with him and just talking with him all the time. And finally, the guy said, yeah, I'll come to church with you. And here, he realized that he needed Jesus as Savior. I know it can seem scary to talk about Jesus. But that fear, all of those social media nastinesses around you, it's just a bully. Did your dad ever teach you how to deal with bullies? You just stand up to them. You just stand up to them and take your beating. And eventually Travis comes along. I'm telling you the truth. This is how it works. Travis comes along and the bully runs scared. Right? That's how it happens. Wherever you live, wherever your country, the restrictions are there. those Those of you that are with us from around the world, we're so thrilled to study with you. I know there are restrictions about sharing Jesus where you are, and there are restrictions in your jobs, but there is always, always a creative way to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Find it and discipline yourself to do it. If you do so, here's what will happen you find fear fleeing because you realize that the pneuma that you have is Travis. It's, it's big. Number five, give money regularly. It brings amazing stability to life when when I'm giving God's money, and and it's all God's provision, when I'm giving God's money. It's incredible how often the Bible speaks about the blessing of regularly disseminating uh, the funds that God has given me stewardship over into his work. What disciplines help me overcome fear? Number six, appropriately use the name Jesus in public conversation. Have you noticed how scared Christians have become to say the name Jesus in public? Jesus. What is up with it? Think about it like this. What if I were afraid to say my wife's name in public? right? We're talking, we're having conversation, and, and you, Shane, you bring up something that, that my sweetheart, that Jana, talks about all the time, but, but here's how I respond to Shane. I say, I, say, um, I, I, know, I know somebody who, uh, who, who, who talks about that a lot. What? That's what Shane would be thinking. What is wrong? Do you not love your wife? Is there some kind of problem? Maybe Wayne's finally senile enough, senile enough to run for high public office. I mean, that, these are the things that are going through your mind. It's ridiculous. Don't shy away from Jesus' name. No, you don't have to artificially blab about God all the time. But when it fits the conversation, and it often does, speak his name. Number seven, observe nature regularly. Learning about God's works and his world is a mighty tool for getting my focus off my anxieties. A few weeks ago, I was feeling a little bit anxious, and I've made this a discipline in my life. It was raining, a nice, steady, slow rain, so I went outside, and I spent a couple hours Measuring the heights. I know this sounds dorky, but it was really fun. Measuring the heights of the different drops in the different puddles and how high they would each go in the in the uh, the connectivity as the water would come back up with the, the hydrotension that was there. It was fascinating. I got done with that, and then I started measuring the different width of the drops and trying to do a little bit of physics to figure out what the speed was that was making the different splashes. The point was, it got my focus off myself and onto creation. Now, I know that brings up a question you're asking in your, in your little girl gymnast voice why does that help great question thank you for asking nadia job gives the answer look at job 37 god thunders wondrously with his voice he does great things that we cannot comprehend for he says to the snow fall to earth and the torrential rains his mighty torrential rains serve as a sign to all mankind so that all men may know his work watching the rain reminds me that god has me in his hand just as surely as he controls the weather and just as each raindrop obeys and does as commanded, so I want to work toward his glory. Number eight, memorize pertinent verses of Scripture. The uh, the, the Navigators and, and other groups have these topical memory systems you can buy that uh, that really help us imprint verses that that in time of need, in a particular situation, they will just spring to mind. Get a system like that. Make it a weekly discipline to memorize God's words. Number nine, commit to and prepare for corporate worship. Do not let kids' schedules, sports, t- tiredness, business don't let anything keep you from God's command to assemble together. This takes Discipline, And by the way, this is one of the reasons that my pastor friends in North Texas have to pray about coveting my job because you guys, many of you do this really well, really well. You, you wait for the, for the post on social media that has the, the tunes for that week's worship set and you go to Spotify and you learn those songs just so you can better praise God. When, when we're doing a book study, like we start next time, next time we're together, we start a study of 1 Peter. Um, so when we start first Peter next time, I know what many of you are going to do. You're going to read, you're going to think about first Peter. You're going to root in that and look at all the scriptures. All I can say is well done. Well done. Number 10, practice undeserved good deeds. I want to give you one example from my life. This is a few weeks ago, 2 a.m. Sorry, 3 a.m. Thursday morning. Uh, so into Thursday morning, 3 a.m. I'm awakened and it's something loud, and then I finally realized that my neighbor is intoxicated. And uh, my next-door neighbor and his drunk buddy are talking very loudly, as drunk people do. And for some reason, they've decided to have their conversation between our houses, right under my bedroom window. So I got up out of bed. This continued for some time. I got up out of bed, and I went outside, and I just went, and I just, I just didn't watch them And they talked, and they were just talking, and then suddenly they saw me. And when they did, I was very friendly. Hey, guys, how you doing? And he was so embarrassed. He was so horribly embarrassed. He had a loud apology, and the two of them went into the house, their house, his house, not mine. Um, Thursday night, so go to that night. Thursday night's the night in my neighborhood where everybody has to put their recycle bins and their trash bins out, right? My neighbor must have gotten over. He must have recovered from his hangover because when I took my cans out in the dark, his were already there as were all the people on our street. Went to bed, again awakened, this time at 2 in the morning. And at 2 in the morning, I set up. But it's not a drunken neighbor. It's a really loud storm. High winds blowing through the neighborhood. I thought, oh, all the trash is so sad. And I go back to sleep until 3 a.m. when thunder wakes me up. And it is absolutely pouring rain. And I thought, oh, this poor garbage guy. There's going to be wet garbage everywhere. And it kept raining. So I got up. I put on some boots. Put on a raincoat. I went outside. And I'm closing all the trash cans on our street for everybody so it won't be full of water. And my poor neighbor, it was a north wind, so it all kind of blew into his yard. So I went over to my neighbor's yard. And I'm picking up all this soggy trash and getting in his trash can and get everything. set, so, 2 p.m. Friday afternoon, I get a text from my door neighbor, and it says this. I saw you on my doorway camera picking up garbage and closing cans. Why would you do that when I was so rude the night before? And there it is. I get to tell him about Jesus, who amazingly does everything for me when I deserve nothing. Do you understand? These disciplines change us. They sophronis most. They help us hold tight. Let's pray about them together. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we will forgive and serve and do a great job and share the gospel and give money regularly and use your name and observe nature and memorize scripture and and commit ourselves to the assembly and practice good deeds. And Lord, we are weak in these, in different areas, different ones of us are weak, and we put ourselves in your hands, and we, we commission, we accept your commission to spread our sail out and let your grace empower us such that we are disciplined, sophronismos, in Jesus' name.